Isaiah 53. I would like to tell you that um, we over at Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Grand Rapids are rejoicing with you over the news that uh, God has provided a man for to come and, and minister to you, and that the church here called him to come in an exploratory manner, and so we are praising God with you, and uh, we continue to pray for you and God's blessing on the ministry here, and we hope that you continue to pray for us as well. I'm sure you do. So uh, we'll be continuing our study in this part of Isaiah. Our text for tonight is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And uh, I'll just go back, however, to the passage that we looked at last week and start at chapter 52 and verse 13 and read from there. So listen now to the word of God, a prophecy concerning the Christ. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, if if we were writing a story about you and how your son would save the world, we would never have written these words. But these words are the truth, and we need them. And so we pray that you would come now and that that by your spirit you would open up the meaning of these words before us so that we might understand them, understand what they are saying to us about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the applications that they have for our lives. But, Father, we need more than understanding tonight. We need the power to believe. We need you to come like like a great cannon and to blast and destroy all the walls that we have set up in our own hearts to disbelieve this. We need you to overcome the deep resistance that we have against the message of the cross. And we need you, Lord, to do this not just in a great way for our conversion to make us into Christians, but, Lord, we also need you to continue this work in our lives for those of us who are Christians, that we might be shaped by this message, that we might receive it and apply it to every part of our lives. Please help us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Work in us by your spirit. May Christ come and be amongst his people even as we speak about him. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. The Bible is the word of God. And everything that it says is truth. The Bible is the word of God, not just in the sense that it is the word about God. The Bible is the word of God in the sense that it is the word from God. It is his message to us. And therefore, we can trust all that it has to say. We can be confident 
that everything in the Holy Scriptures, everything that it affirms, is absolute truth and wisdom. But the Bible tells us some very strange things. In fact, the Bible itself tells us that the message that it brings to us will seem like foolishness to us. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says something that is very relevant to the passage we're about to look at in Isaiah 53. He says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, that unto itself is a strange statement, isn't it? I mean, it almost feels blasphemous to even talk about the foolishness of God. Because God is pure wisdom. Or to speak of the weakness of God, because God is power itself. And yet, this is what the scriptures say. And when it talks about the foolishness of God and the weakness of God... It's not saying that God is actually foolish or weak, but it is saying that God has come to us in a way that is wrapped in what we might think of as foolishness. God has come to us wrapped, hidden in weakness in Christ. And and if we're going to be honest... The way that God has come to us and the way that God has worked through Jesus and indeed the way that God is working today, it just seems foolish to us if we go by our natural wisdom. But Paul is saying here that even when God comes to us wrapped in foolishness, his so-called foolishness is actually much wiser than anything human beings would ever have come up with. And that that God's weakness, God's way of coming to us in what looks like failure is actually far more powerful and effective than any power that human strength could ever muster up. Now, I said this is relevant for the passage that we're about to look at because in Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, God is revealing through his prophets that God hid his saving power in a suffering, despised person. God did indeed send his saving power into the world, but he sent his saving power into the world in a way that was hidden, covered, not clearly visible, not recognized, not widely received, and... Indeed, in somebody whose life was full of pain and shame. So let's look at the text to see, as as Martin Luther liked to say, or at least that he taught, that we find God exactly in the place where he seems most hidden, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see in this text is the hidden power of the Savior. The hidden power of the Savior. And we find that in verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Let me read it again. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we see here the message believed only by a few. Now, these questions that are being asked Who has believed and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are what you might call rhetorical questions. They're not asking us to tell us who it is. It's more like an exclamation saying, so few people have believed this message. You see, there's this news that's being spread. There's this message that's going out. And you notice it says, what he has heard from us or our news. So the person who's speaking here is speaking as a representative of a group of people who are witnesses to the world. They are the group of people that um, the Lord described back in chapter 43, verses 10 through 12, where God says this, 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. See, it's always been God's purpose that his people would be his witnesses to the world, that we would be bearing testimony, that we would bring the truth and the message to the world around us. And this this text is telling us that that does indeed happen, but there's this note of sorrow, this, this grief, this disappointment. Who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, a right response to this testimony is rare. People hear it, to some degree they understand it, and it calls them to believe. It calls them to faith. It calls them to trust, but they don't. Time and time again, they hear the gospel and they don't believe it. John Calvin said, Let us therefore groan and complain along with the prophet, and let us be distressed with grief when we see that our labor is unprofitable. Of those who hear the gospel, scarcely a hundredth person will be a believer. Paul talked about this too. He quoted this passage in Romans chapter 10. In verses 14 through 16, we read the following. Romans 10, verse 14, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah. But, verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel, For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So this is is a, a, a sobering reality that we have to face as the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that that this shouldn't shock us. This shouldn't surprise us. It should grieve us. If the more we become like Jesus, I mean Jesus wept over the fact that so many people saw him, saw his miracles, heard his message, and yet never believed. But we should not stumble at this, my friends. We should not feel like the plan has gone somehow off track, like like it's become derailed. This is actually part of what God's word teaches us. It teaches us that few are those who find the narrow path. Don't expect the word of God to fit with the wisdom of this world. Don't expect that the gospel message is, oh, if they just heard it, if people just heard the gospel message clearly, they'll just flock to church and church will be full. Don't expect that. Because the Bible says to us, with a a kind of lament, who has believed what he has heard from us? Furthermore, in this verse, we see salvation revealed only to a few. Salvation revealed only to a few. Notice it says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have arms and legs. But the Bible often refers to the arm of the Lord as a way of talking about his power. Because we use our arms to do things, don't we? We lift things, we carry things, we push things, we pull things. A person's arms are an important part of their ability to act. And so when it talks about the arm of the Lord, which is an expression that appears many times, indeed several times in the book of Isaiah, it's talking about the power of God. Indeed, sometimes it can even refer to God himself. For example, in chapter 51, verse 9, when it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. They're calling upon God himself to act. 
And so when it's talking about the arm of the Lord here, it's talking about God's power to save his people and to judge his enemies. And this is a wondrous thing. Look back at chapter 52, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 52, just the previous chapter, verse 9. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You see, this is not something that is some secret This is a public thing. The arm of the Lord, the power of God, has come into this world through his son Jesus Christ, and he has acted in a public way to save sinners, leading people all over the world. And isn't it true? Even today, people all over the world have gathered to sing. This passage is being fulfilled right now. And yet... Listen again to the the lament, the groan that comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, it's hidden. The arm of the Lord is hidden. Now, this is very strange, isn't it? On the one hand, the arm of the Lord has publicly appeared. The nations are hearing about it, and yet it has come in a way that the saving power of God is not clearly visible. It is hidden to people. God needs to reveal it. He needs to open people's eyes. There needs to be an act of revelation, not bringing new truth but taking those old truths of the Bible and bringing them to people in a new way so that their hearts are opened, the eyes of their hearts are opened. Suddenly the lights go on and they see, they see the power of God. And why is this necessary? How is the arm of the Lord hidden? It's hidden because God has intentionally hidden the saving power of Christ under his suffering, his weakness, his death. We saw this last time. Chapter 52, verse 14. The servant of God was going to be so mistreated that he would scarcely look human. humiliated to the depths. And as a result, this message, this is God's intention. This is not by accident. God has intentionally wrapped this message and concealed this message in a way that it doesn't fit with what the world expects. For example, we read in John chapter 12, a passage that quotes our text John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41, where it says of Jesus, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, Now he quotes Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. John Calvin says, No man can come to God but by an extraordinary revelation of the Spirit. Why? Well, the answer to that question is found in the next verse. So let's consider, secondly, not only the hiddenness of God's saving power, but the lack of majesty in the Savior. The lack of majesty in the Savior. Look at verse 2. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. We see here, for one thing, the lack of strength in the Savior. The lack of strength in the Savior. The, the, these pictures that Isaiah is drawing are from the world of botany, the world of plants. He, uh, he says he grew up before him like a young plant. The, the word has to do with not, not like a mighty oak that's growing. It's just so impressive. You, know, you look at some trees and they're just, really, they, they could fill you with awe. They're huge, spreading branches, the very picture of strength. This is a twig. This is a twig. This is, this is the kind of thing, like a little twig that's growing off the side of, of a tree that a child walks by and he breaks it off plays with it a little bit, and throws it on the ground. That's the way Christ came. He came with such a lack of apparent strength that it looked like he could just be snuffed out. All it would take is one Roman soldier lost his temper, killed him. He, he, he didn't come in an impressive way. He, he didn't come in a way that, that seemed to communicate that he was filled with power to share with people. He's, he's like a root that's growing up out of dry ground. You ever planted grass in some patch of your yard and forgot to water it repeatedly the way it needs? And you come back and there's this spindly little grass growing up half green, half yellow. I mean, just looks like it might keel over and die at any moment. This is not impressive. And when Jesus came, he did not come in a way that was impressive to people. Because it goes on to talk about, more literally, the lack of honor and beauty that the Savior would have. Notice it says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The word form refers to a person's physical appearance, like a man's physique or a, a woman's figure. Um, it's the same word that's used in verse 14 of chapter 52 regarding the, the horrible physical mutilation that would be suffered by the servant. The word majesty refers to royal splendor, honor, beauty, wealth. When it says his beauty, it's, it's actually the, the word appearance that's used in verse 14 as well. You know, Jesus wasn't very impressive in his appearance. I'm not saying he was a weakling. I mean, well, let's look over at Mark chapter 6 for a moment. Mark chapter 6, to give you a, a, an actual picture of how this played out in Christ's life. Jesus goes to his hometown in Mark chapter 6. He begins to teach. People are astonished. And the reason they're astonished is told us in verse 3. This is what people say in Jesus' hometown. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He's a carpenter. He works with wood. He works with stone. Now, so obviously he wasn't a weakling, right? This was the day before power tools. He was a strong man. And yet everybody, or most everybody, did manual labor back then. So that wasn't anything impressive. But these people knew Jesus. They had watched him grow up. And there was nothing really unusual about him. They looked at him and they said, who does this kid think he is? We know his brothers. We know his sisters. He's not even trained to be a rabbi. Who does he think he is? You see, Jesus didn't have anything about him that really just draw people's eyes to him. It's not like people paint him someday and he has this glow about him. 
He didn't have the kind of physical appearance that he walked into a room and people were like, whoa, who is that and how can I meet him? He didn't have this, this entourage of people who followed him around. You know, like the really important people in this world, they've, they've got my people who they, they just, my people come with me and they attend to me and that. They show up, and you can just look at their clothes. You can look at the car that they drive. And you're like, wow, this is obviously somebody very important. Jesus didn't come with with tremendous wealth. He didn't come with a great army with him. I mean, think about it. His, His disciples were fishermen and a tax collector. What a formidable force. I mean, there there just wasn't anything about Jesus that really marked him out as being this great and powerful man. And you say, well, what about his miracles? Well, yes, Christ did work many miracles, and that did draw attention to him. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus' miracles, aside from certain nature miracles that... Um, I think may have been witnessed mostly by his close ring of disciples, most of Jesus' miracles were healing people. They They weren't acts of asserting his dominance so much as asserting his mercy, caring for the poor, the broken, the throwaways, the people that people just don't respect anyways. What kind of a Messiah is this? It's the Messiah that was promised long before in Isaiah. And so, my friends, don't stumble over the ordinariness of Christ. Don't stumble over the the ordinariness of who he is. The fact that he doesn't have those qualities that would cause people to look to him and to feel like, wow, This is it. (coughs) We have such a celebrity culture in our society, don't we? I mean, it's just amazing. People are on the TV. They've got the big money. They've got the big houses. They're the billionaires. and, And their names are known. And if they actually were to appear... You know, people's hearts flutter and they're just like, oh, you know, they they can hardly speak because so-and-so is standing right in front of them. And it's all hogwash, of course. They're just ordinary people. But it's the way that this world works, isn't it? They're the great ones. Jesus wasn't one of the great ones. He didn't fit that profile. And it was on purpose. It was on purpose. In fact, consider with me thirdly the offensive sorrows of the Savior. Not only do we have the hiddenness of his power and the lack of majesty and honor, but we've got the sorrows of the Savior. Verse 3 contains one of the most striking expressions used in the Bible about Christ. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now this passage has a certain kind of pattern to it that's very common in the Bible. Um, Scholars call it a chiasm. Um, If you ever analyze poetry, you could think of it as an A, B, C, B, A pattern. But I like to describe it as a sandwich. Because you know how you make a sandwich. You start with a slice of bread, and then you put on a layer of mayonnaise or mustard or whatever you like. Then you put the meat in the middle, and you might put on another layer of mayo or mayonnaise, and then you put another slice of bread. In other words, the outside edges are the same, and then you've got the same here, and then you've got the meat in the middle. Now look at this passage. So on the outside edges, what do we find? We find one despised. He was despised. And look at the end of the verse. He was despised. It's the same thing. And we esteemed him not. 
What does that mean? Well, to be despised means to be treated with contempt. It means to be treated lightly, as worthless, unimportant. It doesn't mean hated. I mean, if you hate somebody, you might still respect that person and think, wow, I've got to really think about how I'm going to deal with this person. He's a formidable foe. To despise someone means you just ignore him. Get him out of here. He's not worth my time. He was despised. He was despised. It's kind of like you, you walk into a room full of people and nobody will even look at you. It's like you don't even exist. You almost wish somebody would just get mad at you. It's worse. It's more painful, that sense of being so much on the outside that nobody will even talk to you. He was despised. That's the outside edges. Now let's take a step inward. It says he was despised and rejected by men. Very literally it says a ceasing of men. In other words, people abandoned him. And if we go to the end of the verse and take a step inward, it says, and as one from whom men hide their faces. That means they turn away from him. They really don't want to look at him. He's abandoned. He's rejected. He is forsaken. Now, frankly, friends, this is what our sins deserve with regard to, with regard to God. We deserve to be forsaken and abandoned by God. It says in Isaiah 59, 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But God, even though that's what our sins deserved, he came. He came to this world. He took on human flesh. He became one of us. He came amongst us, and people treated him the way we deserved to be treated by him. They turned away from him. They forsook him. Even his own disciples abandoned him. And one of his best friends said, hey, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know that guy. And Jesus heard him say it. He was despised and rejected by men. And then at the very center of the verse, the meat of the sandwich, so to speak, it says this, a man of sorrows and acquainted with Grief. The idea of a man of sorrows or a man of pain indicates someone who this is what characterizes his life. This is what defines his existence. And the, um, the plural, pains or sorrows, intensifies it. So this is a man whose life is defined by and characterized by pain. Physical pain, emotional pain. Matthew Poole commented that he was a man of sorrows whose whole life was filled with in a manner made up of an uninterrupted succession of sorrows and sufferings. And when it says he was acquainted with grief, that means he knows what it means to grieve. He knows what it means to suffer. And this is why he was rejected and forsaken by men. This is embarrassing. This is uncomfortable. He's, he's so hurting. We don't know what to do with somebody like that. And how did people treat him when he was at the height of his pain? Listen to Mark chapter 15, verses 29 to 32. 
Mark 15, verses 29 to 32, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Do you you understand the logic of what they're about here? You're supposed to be the one who's going to rescue us. You can't even save yourself. Your message makes no sense, Jesus. Because if God were your God and you were truly his servant, you would never have ended up on the cross. This is real, my friends. This is real. This this message of Christ crucified continues to be an offense. So much so that it's my understanding that Muslims who, who believe that Jesus is a prophet of God do not believe that he actually died on the cross. Because it is inconceivable to them, it is unthinkable to them, that God's prophet, that God would ever allow his prophet to suffer such a thing. It makes no sense. And yet, if he had not done it, he would not have saved us. Because God has a deeper logic. God has a wisdom that is wiser than the wisdom of man. God's weakness is stronger than the strength of man. And God's deep logic, as we will see, God willing, when we move ahead in this passage, is that the Son of God must suffer humiliation. He must go down into the depths in order to pay for our sins. He must be wounded so that by his wounds we are healed. But my friends, we have to grapple with the fact that on the surface of it, it makes no sense. God chose to do this in a way that is illogical. Would you go and see a doctor who couldn't even heal himself? Can we trust Christ to make us winners when he looks like a loser? Or what are we to make of this? Well, I would like to present to you three applications. I would like to present to you three applications of what to do with this. This strange message. And given the fact that God has hidden his saving power in a suffering, despised person, given that Christ is the man of sorrows and he calls us to come to him as such, not that he is suffering now, he is past that. He's raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. But because he came to us as a man of sorrows, if we're going to be Christians, we have got to submit ourselves to him as the man of sorrows. This is part of the gospel message. We can't skip it. You can't say, well, I'm just going to trust the resurrected victorious Christ. Because if you're not trusting in him as the one who was the man of sorrows and as the one who was crucified for your sins, you're not truly trusting in Christ. So what does it mean to submit to him as the man of sorrows? Three things. First of all, submit to the man of sorrows to change the way you think about God. Submit to the man of sorrows to change the way that you think about God. What do I mean by this? It is our natural tendency, given the way that our sinful, corrupted minds work to think that God works in the path of ease and blessing. In fact, there are entire religious organizations 
that are built upon the premise that God works through the path of ease and blessing. There are teachers and preachers and authors of books filling bookstores today that will tell you that if God is with you, he is blessing you. And what they mean by blessing you is you're looking good, so you must be living right. Why? You can just look at so-and-so. Look at how God has blessed his business. Look at the way he's living. He's strong. He's healthy. He is the kind of person that people want to look like him and be like him. Obviously, God is with that person. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ crucified, says that is a lie. God works mysteriously but powerfully in the midst of suffering and shame and failure and disgrace and hardship and pain and agony. Do you want to find God? You will find him in a man dying upon a cross. That is what the gospel says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That word glory, that's very important here, my friends. We are glory seekers. We are people who are looking for true glory, beauty and majesty and riches that will satisfy us. And that's right. God made us for glory. But the problem that we have is that we look for human glory. And this is deadly. Listen to what it says in John chapter 12, verses 42 to 43. John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. It says there, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, that is Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is deadly. This takes people who even, though in their minds, they're intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Christ, they will not follow him. Why? Because their hearts are set on the glory of man. We want that visible, tangible, right here, right now, glory. We don't want the rejection. We don't want the pain. We don't want the trouble. And therefore, we don't follow Christ. If this controls us. This, this is the very opposite of saving faith. This is not just a, a matter of growing in your walk with God. Although we do need to grow in this. But listen to what Jesus says in John 5 and verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you feel the force of that statement? How can you believe? What does that imply? If you are seeking the glory of man, if you are seeking the kind of glory that you can have here and now, you cannot believe in Jesus. Not in a saving way. Because to believe in Jesus is to say, I believe that the pathway to eternal glory and happiness is through pain, shame, weakness, foolishness in the eyes of the world. That's what you believe if you believe the gospel. 
And so I say to you, submit to the man of sorrows to change the way you think about God. Cast away your wisdom. Stop judging God and his wisdom and his ways based upon what you think is best. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. How many people in this world proceed along a path of disobeying God, breaking his commandments, but saying, surely God wants me to be happy? And so they justify what they're doing. Surely God would not expect me to suffer in this way, which is what obeying his commandments would require. And so they choose the path of glory and not the path of the cross. And they walk away from the true God and the true Christ. We must submit ourselves to the man of sorrows to change the way we think about God and the way we think not only about God, but secondly, we must submit to the man of sorrows to change the way you think about yourself. How do you judge yourself? What makes you get mad at yourself? Is it when you do something that exposes your weakness? When you look foolish? What really breaks your heart? Is it when shame comes? Is is the thing that you dread most and the thing that you're willing to do almost anything to avoid the thought that you will be publicly shamed and rejected? What is it that makes you feel best about yourself? Is it when you can see that my, my wealth is increasing, my, my appearance, I look good, people respect me. Jesus chose to come without any of the kinds of things that people would have really expected, respected him for. Jesus chose to come in a way that he embraced the things that we flee from. Why? Not because shame is good. We're not, we're not indulging in a form of insanity here where we're like, I love pain, right? I mean, we're not crazy. Pain is bad. <clears throat> but... But when we judge ourselves based upon these things, when you evaluate your life, you are, you, what you're doing is you're taking some ultimate standard and you're measuring yourself by that standard. And what is the standard? For Jesus, the standard was obedience. The standard was doing the will of God. And if doing the will of God meant he could enjoy a feast with his friends, he enjoyed a feast with his friends. But my friends, when doing the will of God took him to the cross, he went to the cross. When doing the will of God meant he was publicly humiliated, he was publicly humiliated and he accepted it. Jesus was not controlled by those kinds of fears because he did not judge himself on those standards because he understood that the thing that really matters in life was it says in 1 John He who does the will of God abides forever. All these other things are passing away. So yes, it hurts when people reject you. In fact, it says in Psalm 69 prophetically that it broke Jesus' heart. It hurt him. But that pain was only for a time. But the glory remained forever. And therefore, my friends, Change the way you think about yourself. Say to yourself, the most important thing about my life is not whether or not I have this greatness amongst men and women. 
It is, it is not whether or not I have, you know, whatever it is you're inclined to pursue. Is it education? I've got multiple letters behind my name. I've got doctorates in this, that, or the other thing. Or are you a businessman? It's not if my business is rocking the market and everybody's coming to me saying, how did you do that? If, if you're a parent or a grandparent, my, my life is not about whether or not I can brag about what my children and grandchildren are doing. Or if I really would rather not talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing. That's not what my life is about. Again, it's not that these things don't matter. We, we love people. We want to succeed in our businesses. Of course we do. But that's not what we're all about. The gospel comes to us and it says that God's way is different than our way. His wisdom is different than our wisdom. And we need to submit ourselves to the man of sorrows. We need to say, the most important thing about me is that I have Jesus Christ. I have Jesus Christ. Do you have Jesus Christ? Does he belong to you? Have you trusted in him with the trust that binds you to him so that his life is now your life? If you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have everything. And no matter what physical pain may rack your body, no matter what public shame or disappointment might come into your life, no matter what financial difficulty might tighten things up, if you have Jesus Christ, all these things are but for a moment. Because God is for you. He's forgiven your sins. He is with you. He is changing your life. And the more he is making you like Christ, the more glorious you are becoming. Even as you get older and you get weaker, your hair falls out or it turns funny colors. You need help doing things. There's glory inside of you. There's glory inside of you because you have Christ. And my friends, I, I would submit to you that changing the way you think about yourself is a lifelong process. I'll be honest with you. I, I wrestled with this message. I, as I was thinking about this this week, there was an inward resistance. I, there was something in my heart, I just don't want to go there. Because I like an easy life. And I don't like these other things. And I have to grow too in this area. But as Christians, this is, this is part of what God is doing in us, isn't it? He is taking the very gospel of Jesus Christ and he's, he's shaping us. And yes, there's a definite beginning to it. There's a new birth where you go from death to life. There's a reorienting of your mind so that now you see true glory. You're now on the path. Your trajectory has changed. But that new birth is just the beginning. And God's still shaping us. And dear friends, oftentimes the way that he shapes us is by putting us in the fire and then pulling us out of the fire and putting us on the anvil and applying the hammer. You ever wondered what it felt like to a sword when it was being made? God is about crafting strong Indeed, glorious people. But he does so in the fire and on the anvil and under the hammer. But the problem that we have is we are saying, God, where are you? And Christ is saying, I am here. And I was here before you were here. Have you forgotten the gospel? This is the path of glory. Submit to the man of sorrows to change how you think about yourself. And then thirdly, submit to the man of sorrows to change the way you think about everybody.
everybody. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16. So much of what I've been preaching from Isaiah tonight, it just it echoes in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, to regard someone according to the flesh doesn't just have to do with the, the physical flesh on your bones. It means to have a sinful, worldly mindset. Flesh, in the Apostle Paul, often refers to the, the condition, the state of the fallen human race. So in other words, there's a way that people commonly view each other and evaluate each other and judge each other. And you know how it goes. People look at each other and like, wow, she's really pretty. She's not. He's really handsome. He's not. You know, we judge each other, we evaluate each other. It can happen in a fraction of a second. And we, we categorize each other in such worldly ways. But Paul says, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that to anybody anymore. And he connects it to the fact that we don't view Jesus the way we used to. Because if we had judged Jesus that way, we would have been part of the crowds that would have been mocking him as he died on the cross. But we have become those who worship the one who died on the cross. So we have come to see that though man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And so as we look at people, we're not, yes, we might notice other things, but we're not putting them in these worldly categories. There are basically two categories that matter to us now. In Christ and not in Christ. Notice what Paul says in the very next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so if I look at somebody, the most important thing to me, just speaking generically as a Christian, if you look at somebody, the most important thing to you is not, is he black, is he white, is he Hispanic, is he a man or is he a woman? Is he young? Is he old? Is he attractive or, or handsome or, or she or anything like that? Is he rich? Is he poor? Is he powerful? Can I get something from him? Is he useful to me? No. When we look at people, the one thing that's important to us is this person saved. Is this a child of God? Is this person joined to Jesus Christ by a living faith. Because if he is, I have just met one of the kings or queens that will rule in the new heavens and the new earth. I have met someone who will join Jesus in his glory as he is high and exalted and lifted up. But if not... If he's not in Christ, if she's not in Christ, it doesn't matter if that person is the king or queen of the greatest nation in this world. It doesn't matter if that person has at his command a vast army and planes and tanks. It doesn't matter if that person is the president or a billionaire or any of these people. Because if he doesn't have Christ... He's an enemy of God, and he's still under God's wrath. And all those glorious things that seem so important in this world will melt away and fall into the dust when Jesus returns. And that person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ just like anybody else and have to answer for his or her sins. And therefore, instead of looking at that person as, wow, that's somebody that, that I need to connect with because I need something from them, or that's a despicable person, or something like that, we look upon the person in Christ, and we love that person, and we value that person, and we look upon the unbeliever 
with pity and compassion, even as they persecute us, because we know that judgment day is coming. Submit to the man of sorrows to change how you think about everybody. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is so foreign to us. And how can, how can we even express it? How can I even express it? And yet your word says it so clearly. Please help us to receive this. Help us to change this. Help us to stop judging ourselves based upon the standards of this world and its greatness. Help us to stop judging other people based upon those standards. But especially, God, especially, help us to stop looking at you in a worldly way. Teach us to see you through the mystery of the cross and replace man's wisdom with your wisdom. Cause us to respect the things that you respect, Lord. Cause us to despise the things that you despise. In Jesus' name, amen.